Hello and welcome to Foresight with me, Greg Williams. Today we're going to be exploring potential policy solutions governments might consider as they look to regulate big tech in a way that won't stifle innovation. So the pandemic has highlighted how reliant we've become on technology. It's enabled many great initiatives focused on public infrastructure, education, healthcare, civic tech, and the establishment of, of new platforms and companies. But the winner-takes-all nature of some tech sectors means that there are concerns around monopolies and regulation. Our guest today is Maricha Sharka. Maricha is the International Policy Director at the Cyber Policy Centre at Stanford University and also the International Policy Fellow at Stanford's Institute for Human-Centred Artificial Intelligence. She served as a member of the European Parliament until 2019 when she established the Cyber Peace Institute, a group focused on ensuring the rights of citizens to security, dignity and equity in cyberspace. Now, it seems that politicians and technologists are often not able to find common ground, which tends to harden positions rather than getting us to a place where we can really think about uh, the complex issues that we need to address. And I'm really excited today about the conversation because uh, Maricha is one of the few people who's able to really understand and grasp both sides, um, having experience both in the world of technology, but also in politics. So uh, Maricha, welcome. Uh, great to have you with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. I look forward to the conversation. Great. Thank you. So let's start by examining the role of uh, technology companies in the democratic process. So in October last year, Mark Zuckerberg banned political advertising on Facebook a week before the general election. Um, clearly, the CEOs of for-profit companies with valuations of tens of billions should be making, or hundreds of billions, well, tens of billions certainly, should not be making these types of decisions. Um, why does this gap between the world of technology and government policy making exist? Well, I think you're spot on. It is a very uh, influential position for the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world to decide who gets to advertise when. Uh, and actually, it's also influential if they decide to just let it happen, right? So we we see more of when there's a, an account closed, like that of, of Donald Trump most prominently. Uh, but when these people are given uh, the platforms and the megaphones to hundreds of millions of, of potential listeners, that is also power. And one of the reasons that explains why that power has gotten so out of hand and why there have not been the proper checks and balances and countervailing powers in place is, I believe, particularly in the United States, uh, the long lasting belief that uh, perhaps the interests of the United States and Silicon Valley itself were aligned, that the best way to let uh, liberties and freedom spread was to not intervene. Uh, and that belief, I think, is, is changing rapidly on the one hand because of the disinformation and all the harms that it has done to trust in the democratic process, but also all the lies that are spread around COVID-19 and how it's hurting public health. So surely freedom of expression is a very important right, but it's not the only right or the only issue at stake. And I think in the U.S., the focus on freedom of expression in the context of tech governance has been almost dogmatic, and it is now uh, time to broaden the view and to see which other rights, like uh, not being discriminated against or uh, the protection of public order and democracy, are also important. So you've got a pretty unique perspective as a, a for, former European lawmaker working at Stanford, um, and it 
I'm really interested in examining your perspective on the cultural and political differences between the Valley uh, and, and, and politicians and politics, how, how, how policy gets made. How do you think, from your perspective, how do we create a more constructive dialogue between technologists uh, and, and lawmakers? Well, it's something that I try to do at Stanford by creating courses that are tailor-made for politicians and policymakers, because the understanding of technology is a challenge for all of us, right? Not only because it is changing so rapidly, but also because so much vital knowledge is in proprietary hands. Um, and I do ask myself sometimes whether the companies that produce the algorithms and the products and services like Facebook or YouTube themselves even have a good handle and a good sense of how the intended and unintended consequences are actually flowing. So the, the pace, uh, the, uh, um, the changes, the impact on society are significant. And so it's a, it's a task for all of us to make sure that uh, knowledge is, is shared uh, and is not kept uh, closed from scrutiny of you know journalists civil society policymakers regulators so, so that is very important yeah sorry go ahead no no please please i interrupted you please go ahead no and and so you know i would like that learning to be mutual because there is a lot of focus on the knowledge that politicians need to acquire i agree but there's not as much focus on the knowledge about the rule of law, democracy, human rights that would really benefit engineers and leaders in Silicon Valley, because it is a bubble, just like Brussels is a bubble, Washington DC is a bubble, Silicon Valley is a bubble, an increasingly powerful and politically relevant bubble where decisions are made that ripple across the world. And if you look at the life of most successful leaders in tech there, uh, it is very far from vulnerable populations, from the least empowered, from the poor, and certainly from you know human rights defenders in places like Myanmar or Kenya or what have you. And so to actually have a good sense of their power and influence across the world and a sense of responsibility, I think more awareness on the part of tech leaders and engineers uh, wouldn't hurt either. And is there also a uh, is it also incumbent maybe on politicians to understand a little bit more um, about about the way that tech platforms work, about those their business models, about the way that these are very complex organisations, and and maybe there is you know we, we've seen in sort of some of the Senate hearings, we've seen here here in the UK in some of the uh, DCMS hearings and various other hearings we've had, there is a very low level of kind of tech literacy among politicians. Is that something that you feel is 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 is, um, is something that we can we can work on in the coming years in order to just increase the dialogue because both sides have to be able to talk to each other fundamentally? Well, absolutely, it's an it's an ongoing task, I would say, for politicians and not only those that directly work on tech, but you know, agriculture is impacted by tech, education is impacted by tech. So it's now really a layer uh, over all aspects of people's lives, not just a topic or an issue, so to say. But let's also look at how hard corporate leaders are actually trying to make that information available or instead are shielding it for the life of them. You know, with intellectual property protections, trade secrecy protections, not only for politicians, but academics, my colleagues at Stanford, despite being in the heart of Silicon Valley, having close ties with those tech leaders, often having educated them in the first place, it is nearly impossible to get the right access to information to assess, for example, how much exposure there has been to disinformation about COVID-19, 
what exactly happened when it comes to influencing of people's minds around the elections? Was it foreign interference? Was it, uh, you know, the the algorithmic amplification that played a crucial role? Was it rather ads that were being being bought or groups instead that that turned out to be very influential? How much power does YouTube have? While we talk about Facebook all the time, so many critical questions that remain only partially researched uh, incident by incident, whistleblower by whistleblower, investigative journalist story by investigative journalist story, and there is not really a comprehensive view of them. So yes, politicians need to learn, but also corporates need to be more aware of their societal impact and make their products and services transparent for scrutiny. So we're talking primarily, if we're talking about the consumer internet, we're talking about a, a surveillance economy effectively based on, on advertising models, which, you know, some people now are referring to as kind of almost, you know, the consumer internet sort of, uh, you know, first sin, primary sin. Do you think there are uh, other models other than capturing data and tracking individuals that can drive innovation and private enterprise um, in, in ways that, you know, are, are able to sort of really drive innovation and, and, and produce new kinds of businesses, new kinds of services? Well, there, there should be. And the whole idea that the Internet is synonymous with big tech is, I think, quite sad. But for a lot of people, it's become that because when they go online, it's those gateways, it's those gatekeepers that they encounter. Yeah. So uh, I worry a great deal about what happens to the public values online. Uh, a lot of that promise of the open internet, uh, civic tech, so many important opportunities that are being really squeezed out by the, the large tech giants that are commercial advertisers uh, to, to a large extent or retailers, um, uh, if you're talking about Amazon, for example. But um, yes, I think through public investment, through open data, through more focus on uh, public infrastructure and the, the need to also preserve the public value and to avoid that digitization almost automatically means privatization. Uh, there is a lot of work that can be done. I think there are some beautiful stories, like, for example, a Wikimedia that has had a very different model compared to uh, the Facebooks of this world. But it's an uphill battle for all these makers. I mean, I talk to them here in Amsterdam. There's been long, long time uh, activity of, of makers and hackers uh, it's not for lack of ideas, but do they get a chance? You know, is is there enough room for true innovation, or have those who who claim to come as newcomers and disruptors essentially grown to be monopolists that have have pulled up the drawbridges? Right. So, if we're thinking about consumers specifically, uh, we have consumer protection uh, law, Data Protection Act, GDPR. Is that not enough? You think? No, it's not. Um, for example, GDPR, uh, I was in the European Parliament when it was negotiated, thought of, uh, voted for, uh, and entered into force. And I think it's definitely a step in the right direction, but the execution and enforcement really leaves a lot to wish for. Uh, a lot of regulators are not properly equipped. Meanwhile, the technology is rushing ahead. Uh, you know, there are now new types of questions, for example, what type of discrimination is acceptable through algorithmic processes and what is not, whether we're talking about protecting sensitive categories, minorities, or uh, whether we're going against price discrimination in the antitrust or, or competition context. There are so many related matters of how data is governed that I think data protection is certainly an important pillar, one that's not executed properly, but there's also many other questions that need to be addressed if this civic space, public space, democratic space 
in the digital uh, layer of our lives is to have a chance. So we talked a little bit about consumer, the consumer internet, and, and I'd love to get your, your kind of broader picture in terms of, sort of geopolitics. Obviously, tech companies have users, news numbers in the billions, they're global actors. How do you think geopolitics is being reshaped by the power and, and I guess, market dominance uh, of these companies? You know, there's pretty much one, uh, you know, search engine outside China, uh, but we're now seeing sort of, you know, really interesting sort of, you know, uh, monopolies established in multiple marketplaces, information warfare conducted through through social uh, media. Um, do you think that increasing these these large tech companies are, are, are taking on a role uh, within the kind of geopolitical sphere? Oh, absolutely. They are geopolitical actors and much depends on their own moral compass. But uh, in many ways, they're already competing with states, democratic states or authoritarian states because of the capabilities that they have. For example, if you think about um, how cybersecurity, but also software companies are essentially in the front, line as fr front lines of national security protection, right? Uh, if there is negligence or poor um, cybersecurity of everyday software, then that becomes the entrance into the most vulnerable systems, as we've seen with SolarWinds or the Exchange Server hack, uh, for example. And so the way in which companies operate, whether they're willing to respect human rights or, or democratic values or not, whether it's all about profit and, and accessing new markets, will really also decide you know, geopolitical relations. And um, uh, I think the fact that these companies have almost de facto become these gigantic players that a lot of people argue that solutions against disinformation around um, protecting, um, protecting digital systems cannot be done by governments alone tells you something. I mean, that statement in and of itself, we can hear it every day in internet governance and tech governance discussions, tells you something about the enormous powers that these companies have already amassed. You mentioned the, the, the Pegasus um, spyware scandal that's ongoing at the moment. Uh, how do you think about the way, I mean, clearly there is a marketplace for these kinds of, uh, these kinds of tools, these kinds of surveillance tools. Uh, how do you think we can best regulate that in order to protect uh, human rights activists, uh, journalists, uh, polit political leaders, uh, so that they're, they, they are able to conduct uh, their, their, their affairs in, in private? Well, there currently is a marketplace for spyware, but I don't think there should be in the uh, out-of-control way that there is now, because you have this very, uh, very cynical and toxic cycle between law enforcement, often in democratic societies, procuring these systems in the name of fighting terrorism or uh, organized crime, both very serious goals, but uh, the means might have disproportionately harmful effects as well. So you have these surveillance tools, which have far-reaching consequences in the context of the rule of law and, and used vis-a-vis uh, you know, -vis people who have rights protections through their constitutions. But the impact of such very aggressive intelligence-grade systems becomes disproportionately harmful when they're sold to military intelligence of dictatorships, for example. And until very recently, there was really nothing in the way of these companies. Uh, currently, there's, there's um, a new updated export control uh, set of mechanisms in place in the EU. But for the large large part of the of the democratic world, there are no restrictions essentially against this sector, which it's it's strange to see that governments 
in democracies that are calling for respect for press freedom, for freedom of assembly, that are asking dictatorial leaders to respect the rights of their people, on the one hand, are allowing the tools of repression to be traded and uh, consulted for unregulated. And it, it's really another example of not only big tech, but also smaller tech, because the spyware industry is growing, but it's not, not yet big tech, can really have a, a competing impact vis-a-vis -vis states, and I would say to the detriment of democratic values. And so I, I can only hope that the Pegasus project uh, brings the spotlight to the extent of harms from you know people listed as as uh, targets, the editor in chief of the Financial Times, the president of France, hardly credible suspects of terror and crime, uh, that that these revelations will finally mean a turning point. It's been a very long time coming. And we're also in the middle of ongoing conversations about you know the rolling out of artificial intelligence in all kinds of, of, of products and all kinds of industries. Um, there doesn't seem to be any kind of global agreements in place about the way that AI is, is being used. How would you like to see uh, AI regulated uh, and, and used as, as we move forward with particular sort of relevance towards uh, governance? So maybe to start with the first, the whole idea that there would be you know, a global agreement is very rare. Around climate change, it's emerging because the idea of a shared destiny with our with our planet is, is uh, well understood by now. But when it comes to AI, the governance models and also the desires of different governments are different. Uh, you have China that really looks to optimize the power and control by the state through the use of technology and also sees you know, national champions and feeding with data almost limitlessly. Um, as, as a goal that aligns with that of the state. Whereas in, in other societies, the United States, it's actually market players that get a lot more room. And then uh, as a sort of third way, you can see the EU that seeks to first get a good sense of what the potential harms could be besides fostering the market, and then looks at mitigating those harms before it's too late. And I think this is a really interesting discussion to witness now because you have the Eric Schmitz of this world who say, you know, it's a completely misguided idea to start regulating AI now that the EU is shooting itself in the foot, that it's too early. But when we look at so many other tech-related problems that we face today, I think it's, it's safe to say that often regulation has been too late. And so it's not only about whether or not to regulate, it's what we're regulating for. And in the EU currently, the idea is that certain high-risk uses of AI should be banned or should be scrutinized very, very heavily, like um, mass facial recognition systems, social crediting systems, uh, AI decisions that impact people's access to education or to work or to social welfare benefits. And it cascades down to sort of no risk. Um, and I think that, you know, as a starting point, that's that's a reasonable approach. The whole idea that AI is one thing doesn't make sense. It can be used in a thousand different ways. Uh, but there's also need to have more, let's say, generally applicable oversight mechanisms uh, into how automatic decisions are made and how they can be accountable. Well, talking about you know acting too late, and you know once we're already you know the castle's been overrun, we've seen you know misinformation, the weaponization of technology platforms by bad actors. Uh, you, you, we've obviously you're talking about AI at the moment. I'm really interested to get your thoughts about digital currencies, cryptocurrencies, 
what what are your thoughts there, given the impact they could potentially have on, on, on markets? Well, there's a big difference between cryptocurrencies that are completely out of the realm of central banks or or the monetary yeah. policies of states uh, and those that are. So, yeah. you know, cryptocurrency can be basically anything uh, or or anything in terms of uh, the technology, but how it's governed is is different. And I, I do believe that there has been a bubble that, you know, people have been meant to believe that it's a free way to make money. I, I read that uh, in the Netherlands, uh, around a million people have have bitcoins as an investment um you know i i hope that uh they're not going to be losing all of their savings that way uh whereas you know when the european central bank is looking at experimenting with with digital currencies it's a completely different question it's more an actual currency instead of a a, a speculative um uh, asset or you know created created scarcity so um, I think there will be regulation. I think it's unavoidable. And uh, we'll have to see what that does to the more, uh, well, um, bottom-up and uh, at times completely unaccountable uses of Bitcoin. I'm interested to get your thoughts on, obviously, we've had, you know, he, over the last sort of 18 months, uh, Western governments, well, governments all over the world, underwriting, you know, billions in loans uh, in order to support economies. Uh, do you think that they're going to have maybe there's going to be less tolerance? And I'm, I guess I'm specifically talking about the West and the EU, uh, UK and the United States, less tolerance for businesses that rely on, you know, asymmetric relationships. So gig economy workers with very few benefits. I guess the question is, can you see increased regulation for businesses that have themselves relied on, you know, regulatory arbitrage to some degree? Well, I hope so. Um, because even if some of the business practices of the the most well-known tech companies are, I think, despicable, you know, not paying taxes, lying uh, about harms, uh, exploiting workers, for example, exploiting children, uh, things like that, is um, is problematic, and one would hope that that the market would punish them. Uh, the over-reliance, uh, in part because of the COVID-19 pandemic and everybody needing to work from home, uh, access information and culture from home, uh, go to school from home, has made them even more powerful. And I believe the pushback is coming and it's coming fast. I would not be surprised if in the US there will be much more uh, concern for the fact that there is such low taxation, even if all public resources are so depleted, whether you look at infrastructure, public health, uh, education, unemployment benefits, you know, the, the list is very, very long. And, and I think the pressure on public resources has increased because of the pandemic. So the question is, who's going to um, uh, fill the treasuries? And the fact that there is indeed so many more billions on the bank accounts of tech companies and, and not as much taxation, I think, will kind of lead to a natural uh, focus on, on balancing that imbalance. I mean, what's, what is your view, I Matt, mean, on, on the uh, seen the G7 and G20 countries come up with a plan for a, a global tax rate? Uh, there are some holdouts, but, you know, there's still negotiations, negotiations going on. What's your sense of that proposal and you know, will it be effective? I hope it's a first step. And I think the idea that this is now moving uh, has a lot to do with the new administration in the United States. And it's a positive sign that there can still be multilateral agreements around shared concerns. And it also shows that there is an alignment that long was lacking around the need to actually impose these taxes, not only on tech companies, by the way, but on big multinational organizations that many of them 
have armies of lawyers that seek to exploit loopholes so that they have to pay as little tax as possible, so that they have to respect the rights of workers as as minimally as possible and so on and so forth. And meanwhile, the profits are also used for bigger lobbying budgets to go against any kinds of regulatory interventions that may hurt their, their business model. So uh, we have to really keep an eye out for um, whether or not they're there are not companies that are growing so powerful, not just as monopolies, but really so powerful that um, there is an asymmetry in how they can wage their power vis-a-vis democratic legislative processes. So um, we're pretty much um, uh, out of time for me to ask you questions. We we are going to move to uh, uh, to the Q&A at the moment for people watching. But I'd just love to get, before we go there, just ask you a final question. just how do you think things are going to play out? And, and I'm thinking specifically about, you know, regulation over the next, I don't know, three to five years. Do you, do you think there's going to be a radical difference in, in, in the way that these platforms are, 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 are able to operate in three to five years? Or do you think this is just the beginning of a, a very long road and there's going to be, uh, you know, very sort of small incremental changes moving going forward? Well, what I tell my students at Stanford is that I believe the next decade is going to be crucial in setting you know, the foundational pillars of which kinds of conditions need to be met by industry. Uh, and so this means regulation for updated antitrust rules, for uh, making sure that there is not illegal discrimination going on invisibly uh, through algorithmic processes or other kinds of business models. Um, it means that data governance needs to be organize better, whether it's data protection or uh, assessing for cybersecurity, uh, making making systems that everybody uses. Think about the wave of Internet of Things uh, products that are going to come our way, that we are actually resilient. I think that the awareness is growing that this very sector that particularly Americans were so proud of, they saw as their big success. I mean, I've, I've been in multiple meetings where the whole assumption was that the EU was only regulating out of envy for Silicon Valley's success, that those big champions are now also the big creators of massive vulnerabilities, vulnerabilities to democracy, vulnerabilities when it comes to uh, jobs and the ability for for people to provide for their own income, uh, vulnerabilities for national security. Look at all the ransomware and and, uh, state-led hacking campaigns that are going on. So Yes, I expect to see to see um, more action from Washington. We can already see it, by the way. Um, and I hope that there will be better collaboration between democratic governments to create um, critical mass and to, to not only solve for some of these problems within societies, but really globally. Because at the end of the day, uh, the very fundamental rights, freedoms, and, and democratic principles, rule of law principles are at stake. Thank you so much, Marietta. So a couple of questions here. We've got quite a few coming in. Um, one I'm, I'm interested in, actually, that we've covered off some of them, I think, in the conversation. Um, but one question is, um, is there a government, you know, anywhere in the world that you think is really being effective uh, beyond being thoughtful about technology, uh, whether that's regulation or the way that it works with, you know, civic infrastructure or, uh, you know, public bodies um, that you think is a kind of a good model uh, for, for, for other other nations to take a look at? 
Well, unfortunately, it's not a very large country, but I think uh, Estonia as, yeah. a, as a country has, has been really in the front lines, ironically, because it was attacked at some point and it really yeah. led to sort of, you know, national mission to get the use of, of digital uh, rights. And they've had, you know, state, state um, uh, organized digital identity for a long, long time. All government services are digital and trusted and effective. So I think Estonia is a good example. We've also seen interesting work being done in Taiwan when it comes to uh, digital governments by, by uh, uh, Minister Audrey Tang, for example. So there are some really interesting examples to look at. They do have to scale, I would say, um, to to reach that more critical mass and to truly offer counterweight to both the privatized governance model, which is so dominant in the democratic world, and the authoritarian governance model that we see, unfortunately, gaining steam as well. Okay, well, I think that's uh, hopefully a, a fairly optimistic note to, to end on. So thank you, Merita, for your time um, and for sharing your insights today. It's, it's much appreciated. Um, thank you, too. If you enjoyed the session today, please do check out the rest of the Wired Foresight series, which includes discussions with economist and author Narina Hertz on the loneliness epidemic, um, associate professor in philosophy at the Institute of Ethics in AI, Carissa Veiz on the power of privacy, uh, Ipsos Mori's CEO Ben Page on what life could look like in 2025. All are available online at wired.co.uk and on our Foresight podcast series. Uh, I want to say a final thank you to Marietta. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you to all of you for watching as well. Uh, thank you all. Stay well, and we shall see you soon. Bye now.